Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. The church in Kilmore Quay, dedicated to St. Peter, the biblical fisher of men, stands on an elevated site in the middle of the village and is the first landmark spotted by seafarers as they sail towards the harbour. I like to think that it was some comfort to the frail German sailor and his teenage daughter when their small craft ran aground there on the 1st of January 1950. New Year's Day fell on a Sunday that year and as the good citizens of Kilmore Quay made their way home from Mass, someone noticed a small yacht with full sail stuck on a reef east of the village. A rescue party comprising three Bates brothers and Paddy Wickham, found Paul Muller and his 18-year-old daughter Aga in a 16-foot yacht called the Berlin. This was possibly not such a surprise to the fishermen, as the Mullers, dubbed the Mad Mullers by some of the newspapers of the time, had been attracting media attention since their daring escape by boat from East Berlin in 1948. Their destination was South America and they hoped to sell their story to the German and American newspapers and to earn enough money to pay for the passage of Paul's wife and son to a new life in Argentina. The incident in Kilmore Quay was their eighth brush with death since leaving Hamburg in October 1949. Photographs show a frail and bespectacled Paul and the pretty teenager Aga who were treated like celebrities in the village while they recovered their strength and repaired their boat. I grew up knowing something of the Muller's story as the chief cat in our household bore their name. This was because my great-grandfather Peter, a retired ship's baker himself, was so impressed by the story of the Muller's that he named a cat in their honour. And when my parents married in 1957, a black and white kitten a descendant of Great Grandad's cat and also called Muller, accompanied my mother to her new home. Muller was a gentle creature, allowing herself to be wheeled round in my doll's pram and as a result features in many of our childhood photos. But I never knew how the sailor's story ended and assumed that the brave duo had made it safely to South America. Sadly, hardship and tragedy sailed hand in hand with the father and daughter when they left Kilmore Quay on the 7th of January. In less than 24 hours they were in trouble again and the Helvig lifeboat towed them to safety. Paul was in a state of collapse at this stage but Aga was still in good spirits. They insisted on carrying on, Paul telling locals that his and Aga's iron will and steel nerves would carry them towards their dream of uniting their family on a small farm in Argentina. They got 10 miles along the coast before being taken ashore at Ardmore the next day. They rested here for a few days, then finally made it to Cork before heading out into the open sea towards the Canary Islands. Little was heard of them again until in July 1950 the Irish press reported the final chapter of the voyage. And this is what happened. When they were off the coast of Africa, Paul became very ill and lay below deck while Aga sailed single-handedly. 
a local tribe launched a raiding party and boarded the boat, stealing their food and blankets. Afraid that the raiders would return, Aga cut the anchor and turned the boat seaward before going below deck to comfort her father in his final hours of life. The following morning, Aga, shocked and grieving, beached the boat halfway down the Liberian coast and tried valiantly to carry her father's body ashore. But she was too weak and had to leave him in the boat while she waded in and set out barefoot on a six-hour walk across country. She arrived in the township of Buchanan and a search party returned with her and recovered her father's body. And Paul Muller was laid to rest in Liberia. The last mention I could find of this brave girl in the newspaper archives of the 1950s was that she returned to Ireland to tell the Muller story, declaring that she would speak only to the Irish. Local legend has it that she settled down in Ireland. And if she did, is it too much to hope she's listening to me now? And does she know that they are still talking about her in Kilmore Quay? It's hard being a kid brother. I speak from experience. Old neighbours often call me by the name of my big brother, whose footballing exploits I never matched. But I've had it easier than Jack Butler Yates. My big brother didn't win the Nobel Prize for Literature, wasn't considered the greatest poet of his era, and didn't possess a self-important public aura. Not that the Yeatses were rivals, W.B. was a supportive older brother, untreatened by his sibling's talent. But when a big brother spends his life weaving a personalised mythology and a kid brother declines to mythologise himself, it's hard to escape that big brother's shadow. Nothing better sums up their difference than their epitaphs. W.B.'s epitaph was austere. Cast a cold eye on life, on death, horsemen pass by. Jack's epitaph was whimsical. 
when told to a friend before his death. I have travelled all my life without a ticket, and therefore I was never to be seen when inspectors came round because then I was under the seat. It was rather dusty, but I used to get the sun on the floor sometimes. They chose their wives differently too. When W.B. finally married, his bride was half his age and humiliatingly knew that she was his third choice, his other two proposals having been recently rejected. Jack was 20 when he became engaged to a fellow art school student, affectionately nicknamed Cotty. He spent three years working in a fireless room, producing comic magazine sketches until he earned enough to give his bride a home. Jack and Cotty were childless, but shared a compatible happiness for 53 years until she died in 1947. Jack never lost his childlike sense of wonder. While his elder brother dabbled in the occult and astrology, Jack enjoyed creating puppet shows for children and making model boats with the poet John Macefield. His early illustrations were simple depictions of West of Ireland life, but also captured the circuses he enjoyed with boyish enthusiasm. These early drawings don't only convey sweetness. He illustrated the dreadful poverty that J.M. Singh chronicled in newspaper articles when they travelled through Connacht. But while capturing that poverty, he also caught people's defiant spark. What he witnessed never left him. But what makes him remarkable is that he described everything twice. He did so straightforwardly as a young man. But walking in aisles when older, he revisited those memories in a way that made him a great artist. His starting points in the latter paintings didn't change. Irish landscapes, ponies, travelling shows. What changed was his depiction he painted the layers of emotion within his memories so that his canvases became not external landscapes but internal ones infused with grief and passion. He ceased being a factual illustrator but chronicled the human heart even if this initially baffled his small audience. His monumental works were painted in a state he described as half-memory, the original landscapes distorted with vibrant emotional colour flowing so quickly that brush strokes weren't enough daubs of paint were squeezed onto the canvas and moulded by his fingers in conservative Dublin he was mocked but a new generation of writers were mesmerised by the audacious free-flowing freedom of these paintings by extraneous forces crowding at the canvases to give the logic of dreams young Samuel Beckett was in awe of him James Joyce treasured a Yeats painting it took Ireland a long time to realise how the young sibling was as great an artistic force as his famous brother. But Jack B. Yeats was too engaged with life to worry about fame. Not that he was reclusive. Carlos at the city centre studio were served Madeira with twists of lemon peel. If persuaded to stroll along Fitzwilliam Street, he brought his visitors flowers from street sellers, regaling them with stories of beggars he had befriended. After his wife's death, he entered an old folks' home at Portobello Bridge. The modernist poet Thomas McGreevy visited every night, no matter how late the hour. Overhearing McGreevy's chatter, residents complained that Yeats has the BBC radio on every night after midnight. Jack Yeats chose to travel without a ticket and hide from inspectors, but the kid brother has emerged from his big brother's shadow to become 
recognized as Ireland's greatest 20th century painter, his textured masterpieces displayed in the National Gallery. I think of him whenever I walk the canal bank near Portobello Bridge, knowing how he loved to leave his nursing home and walk there immersed in life. Two days before he died, aged 86, he made his final drawing, two swirling ponies on a funfair roundabout. That captures him, joyous to the last, wrapped in wonder and unpreoccupied by any thoughts of genius. It was early March 1979 and I left the UCD campus mid-afternoon and went to my bedsit, a little back room over a shop in Windy Arbour. Five pounds a week. Now, normally I haunted Belfield morning, noon and night. The arts block was my stately pleasure dome, my wonderful everyday and my Sunday best. My bedsit was for sleeping in and writing last-minute essays in. Being there in the afternoon was just weird. Even stranger, I fell asleep. When I woke, it was dark, and not having turned on the two-bar electric fire, very, very cold. Through the grogginess, something dawned on me, and I checked the time. Oh, God. It was, well, it was some time after 8pm, and you see, I was acting in a play in Dramsock that had started at 8. But let's rewind a bit. Two years before, in Freshers Week, Dramstock was one of the ten or so college societies I'd joined once I got over the shock that the University Drama Society did not operate from an ancient ornate hall with a raised stage, my 17-year-old's notion of theatre. Dramstock HQ was a cold black box space in the basement of the arts building called, with little regard for the romance of it all, LG1. Folding doors gave access to the equally glamorous LG2. Nonetheless, production photos on display of the previous year's triumph, uh, Shakespeare's Richard II, suggested that some kind of magic could be created. I parted with my precious 50p and joined. Some of my new college friends were convinced I was wasting my money. Dramsock was a clique, weird types, a nest of homosexuals, an appalling stereotype which I'm very glad to say I discovered to be largely true. But the notion that this coven was unfriendly was not. The very first time I summoned up the courage to audition for a play, The Bed-Sitting Room, by my comic hero, Spike Milligan, I was welcomed and cast in a leading role. So here I was, starting my college life, acting in a play called The Bed-Sitting Room, and renting my own bed-sitting room. I was free as a bird. I became, I admit, an inordinately selfish member of Dramsock. And not for me the tiresome business of hunting down props, sticking up posters or manning the box office. I acted. I soaked up applause and laughter. Even learning lines was a tedious necessity, though I usually got there by opening night while testing the nervous systems of my more studious fellow performers. But I'd never ever missed a performance. So waking up in my bedsit when the show I was in had already started was a new and scary experience. Uh, the play, by the way, 
was Brand by Ibsen, directed by Dr. Joseph Long, a lecturer in the French department. Remember the Richard II production photographs that had impressed me in Freshers Week two years before? He directed that. Something of a Dramstock legend, everyone wanted to be in a Joe Long production, including myself, although, dark secret, I'd read Ibsen's brand and thought it was spectacularly boring. When Joe offered me the minor role of the provost, I found myself experiencing a very peculiar form of envy. I really disliked the play, but was furious not to have been offered the lead role. Perhaps waking after curtain time was some unconsciously psychotic howl of rage against Ibsen, Brand, Dr Joseph Long and the whole wretched production. Well, I had no time to consider this fascinating psychological question because I was grabbing a coat in the dark and cantering from my bedsit out under the shadow of Dundrum Mental Hospital along Bird Avenue, spinning left and then right at the Klonsky entrance to Belfield and sprinting down the ridiculously long avenue past dark playing fields and the looming water tower to the science block and the lake into the maw of the arts building and down, down to the basement and LG1. It was almost nine o'clock. Through the buzzing interval crowd, I spotted three faces huddled together in tense conversation. The auditor of Dramsock, the stage manager, and Dr Joseph Long. And now a reveal. An anticlimax, perhaps. I had reluctantly accepted a smaller role in Brand, I did not mention that the character of the provost did not appear until the second half, when, as it happens, he had quite a big scene, but that's by the way. So, though I had been AWOL for the entire first half and created serious trauma for the production team, I had not actually missed my bit. Joe Long glared at my sweating, panting self and was brief. Get changed, please. In the gloom of LG2, he who had been about to read in my part clambered out of the soutane and amusing hat that was my costume, and without a whiff of warm-up, on I went. My scene, well, I remember nothing about it. It was fine, I think. Everything had worked out fine, really. Afterwards, as I was getting out of my costume, I saw Joe coming towards me. I sighed and thought, here we go. Remember, this director was not a fellow student, he was Dr Joseph Long of the French department. I was resigned to a terrible tirade, a monumental dressing down. Joe spoke in a cold but very even voice. You may have no respect for your own work, Jerry, but please have some respect for mine. And he walked away. That I can remember his words precisely, 42 years later, indicates the intensity of their effect. No lengthy harangue could have humbled me more than that crisp sentence. Not only did I appreciate and regret the stress I'd caused my fellow students, I realised something else for the first time. You may have no respect for your own work, he said. And my pain at this judgement told me that my involvement in Dramsock was no passing college fling, but a serious affair. I'd never given it a second's thought, but now felt at least a flicker of understanding that this theatre thing involved giving as much respect and applause as I received. If, that is, I wanted to do it right at all. It is generally understood that going to college may change someone's life, 
What is not always appreciated is that the life-changing bit can happen not in moments of achievement, but of shame. However, in a story about new insights, I should emphasise that one important detail remains unchanged since that time. Trust me, Ibsen's brand really is boring. When I was 19, I wandered into a bookshop in Dublin's Duke Street and discovered a pale blue illustrated edition of a long poem called The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, translated by Edward Fitzgerald. I bought it immediately. I was earning £14 a week in my first job in an architect's office in Ballsbridge. Every day at lunchtime, I hurried into town on the bus had a quick sandwich, after which I'd head to the same bookshop to browse or sometimes buy. Finding this poem in 90 quatrains was a surprising discovery at a time when I felt doomed to the whims of the architect and his partner, the pair of them dodging every formidable nun who came to the office scolding about unfinished work on school building sites. I discovered that if books like this were still being published, there was obviously an audience for such wisdom-drenched lines. For me, it offered the possibilities of the sensuous world as opposed to the ascetic one, of finding a new sense of perspective and the confirmation that I should enjoy my life and times because the alternative was not so rosy. Despite having been translated in Victorian times, the poem seemed timeless both then and today. Inevitably, the four lines that most appealed to me were those which most Rubaiyat readers will recall. A book of verses underneath the bough, a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou beside me singing in the wilderness, O wilderness where paradise enow. And today, when I open the book, I can see my own 1973 lipstick imprint on that particular section, because I actually kissed those lines. It was a long way from the architect's Ballsbridge dungeon, from PAYE and VAT returns, and it offered promising prospects to a young woman who wanted to find her own wilderness with a lover not yet encountered. There are frequent references to wine in many of the verses. Calls to fill one's cup because no matter what, we're all destined for a common end. The great and the good, the humble and the unnoticed. As Omar Khayyam makes his daily rounds of the library, the tavern, visits his mistress, a potter's shop, an owl-haunted caravanserai and finally a tomb the reader is invited to observe ordinary activities which for him have great meaning. He asks to be wrapped in a winding sheet of vine leaves on his death 
and there's no doubting the fatalism of this 11th century work, which lays bare the charlatanism of everyday life and encourages us to live, love, drink and enjoy, no matter what our calling. To turn to the product of the vine, he suggests, is to take pleasure in a juice he refers to as the growth of God. The grape from which such appealing sounding wine was made and which Omar Khayyam undoubtedly imbibed was one which preceded the later renowned Shirazi grape, not to be confused, by the way, with what we today call a Shiraz or Syrah. Vineyards flourished in and around the city of Shiraz around the 9th century in Persia, when this country produced the finest wine in the Middle East. But a new vine was introduced when the 17th century King Abbas II of Persia resettled people from eastern Georgia, and it was they who imported the grape variety Saparavi, which is very similar to today's Syrah. Some enthusiastic English and French travellers to the region in the 17th to 19th centuries reported that the best Shiraz wines were grown in terraced vineyards rather than the most diluted results of irrigation. In modern Iran, no Shiraz wine is officially produced. Before the Islamic Revolution in 1979, there were up to 300 vineyards, and now it's thought there are actually thousands but these are underground operations, and as a whole, Iran is not a wine-producing country anymore. I can only imagine what it must be like today to live within a Shiraz-growing region where small quantities are grown, but in secret. And I wonder if Omar Khayyam's Rubaiyat speaks to contemporary Iranians, or even if there's some young woman in a souk floundering for direction in her life, as I once was in that Dublin bookshop, who might find his lines consoling? Were it not for the poets Swinburne and Rossetti, who bought the Rubaiyat and popularised it, modern readers in the West would have missed one of the riest, most colourful commentaries on how to conduct one's life. So, to poetry and to wine. They sustain us in ways that have nothing at all to do with making ends meet. But today, when we know so much about everybody else's tragedies at home and globally, surely there's also a sense that we must live as well as we can. So I have no issue with old Khayyam, who reminds us that, whether at Naishapur or Babylon, whether the cup with sweet or bitter run, the wine of life keeps oozing drop by drop. The leaves of life keep falling one by one. I went to the Isle of Wight to talk about death. I went in the car, then on a plane, a bus, a train and a ferry. There were 50 Oompa Loompas on the ferry with orange makeup and green hair. Beautiful young students, their voices strong and clear.
when they sang the Oompa Loompa song. On the ferry, all these WhatsApp messages started to come through. My sister Emer was clearing out a cupboard, sending me photographs of photographs, many that I had not seen before. Our black and white parents, like film stars, posing under the Eiffel Tower. Me, age two, with a beloved and ragged teddy bear that had to be burnt after I got sick on it. And I remembered how Daddy explained this to me carefully so that I understood I would have to let the teddy go. My birthday party. The photograph taken as I took in a big breath to blow out four candles on the cake. The photo of my mother at a fancy dress party in a bunny girl costume with ears, leotard, fishnet tights and a powder puff from the Avon talc box on her bottom. Photographs of me and my sisters at a wedding, a first communion, a confirmation and me wearing that hated iron wool hat my grandmother knitted with such love. And there was our old dog Gypsy. Then photographs of my babies with their big eyes. My life flashing before me as they sang the Oompa Loompa song. I went to the Isle of Wight to learn about death. To a conference on palliative care hosted by Mountbatten Hospice. There was a guest house that looked like something out of country living. And in my room at the top of the stairs I looked out over rooftops to the sea. And a big ship sailing somewhere. In Mountbatten Hospice... There were yellow umbrellas like sunflowers hanging from the ceiling, orange chairs, paintings and collages on the walls. There was cake in the cafe, a garden, visiting ponies, a piano donated by the Moody Blues, and I immediately felt at home, in a conference building that had red and gold pillars and deep turquoise walls. And I was told that the Victorians had built underground tunnels below with an Egyptian chamber. Then later, the hospice choir, all of them dressed in orange and yellow, sang, I believe with every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. And there was a booth in the town with blackboards where children could chalk up all the things they want to do before they die. I listened to the statistics. So many will get this disease and another percentage will get that. And then I heard someone say that 100% of all people will die. I felt such relief because we're in this together. I listened to the CEO of the Mountbatten Hospice Group, Isle of Wight and Hampshire, Nigel Hartley, speaking about the precious last days he had with his mother and I cried. Laughed when he described the bus that passes the hospice and how surprised the passengers are to see patients working out in the gym. Nigel told the story of how late one night he found an 80-year-old man on the treadmill with the cord of his dressing gown hanging down. And when that man said he would prefer to die moving than lie in a bed, Nigel tied up the cord and let him live and die in his own way. I learned that if you can die well, it is so much easier for those who survive you. But that the main challenge for us now is loneliness and isolation in our society. And that is why this particular hospice is a place where people can gather to meet other people, to sing, play and eat a good Sunday lunch. I went to the Isle of Wight to talk about death and heard about Walk the White, a hugely successful fundraising project where hundreds of people turn up each year to walk the 28 kilometres around the island for the hospice they treasure and love. 
I drank good wine and ate cannelloni, followed by salted caramel ice cream and meringue. And I was shown how to make a plan for dying and how it might be possible, like Leonard Cohn, to write, sing and create right up to the end. I went to the Isle of Wight to talk about death and then I really began to live. Silence isn't golden, it's white. Bolivia is beautiful, but it's not a quiet country. I flew into La Paz in the middle of the night and it was deceptively tranquil. Pasenas are early to bed, early to rise types. But during the day, as I trudged up and down the cobbled hills of the city in the heat, suffering the altitude, I was assailed by clamour. The rumble and belch of buses, horns blaring, touts hanging out the passenger windows of minivans, yammering destinations, street corner preachers calling out to save my soul, and music everywhere. In January, in the city's plazas and parks, it's quite common to see groups of people practising their dances for the upcoming carnival. Even the bin collectors played a tune, a jaunty, tinkly warble that made me think it was an ice cream van, which was very confusing at six in the morning. There was music too on the bus, a TV blasted music, mostly traditional and on a loop, so much so that on my daily commute, the bus sputtering up the mountainside, I could predict which song was up next, even if, to my ears, each guitar and panpipe combo sounded pretty much the same. Intercity buses weren't much different. On a long overnight journey, I had to suffer films played at full volume, I really didn't want to watch the last Terminator film. Even dubbed into Spanish, Schwarzenegger sounded even more bored than I was. Sometimes children hopped on the bus to entertain passengers with, well, what else? Panpipes. It can be a stressful place. When you cross the street, there's a 30-second countdown and the animated green man first walks, then jogs, then sprints for the final urgent five seconds. Only the myriad stray dogs sleeping in the heat of the sun seem oblivious to the racket. I did find one place, though, in La Paz, where the name of the city didn't prove ironic. Way on the outskirts, where the houses are mere shanties clinging to the side of the mountain and the streets are rubble, is a little visited canyon, the Valley of the Souls. As I climbed and clambered higher and higher through a ravine that only got narrower and stonier, the sounds of the city fell away, and all I could hear was the babble of a brook. I called out, hello, only to hear no echo. It was as if my voice had been swallowed by the landscape. This was but a hint of what was to come later when I visited the Salt Desert. In the Salt Desert, I knew there'd be peace. Would it come dropping slow? Not even El Cementerio de Trenes, the train graveyard, that's the first stop for every tour group to the salt flats, could prepare me for the silence I would soon encounter. Dozens of hulking, rusted steam engines and rail cars sat abandoned against a landscape seemingly tailor-made for an old-fashioned, widescreen, technicolor motion picture, all shimmering sun and vast skies, and in the distance, the Andes Mountains. 
It's hard not to think that these huge mechanical beasts simply gave up and died here. The Salt Desert is a dried up prehistoric lake that extends for roughly 4,000 square miles. By day, the line between earth and sky vanishes. During the rainy season, the surface becomes a polished mirror and you can while away hours watching upside down clouds billow across it, while at night, the Milky Way in all its splendor is spread above you. The Salt Desert is well named. It's arid, empty, blindingly white and, well, salty. I was immersed in quiet. The only sound was from my boots crunching the surface. I knelt down, stuck out my tongue to taste its tang. There seemed to be no nature here, no plants or flowers, insects or birds. We drove for hours before we saw any sign of life. At a lagoon, the alpacas and llamas watched us warily while hundreds of flamingos puttered about in the water. That night, we slept in a house made of salt, the floors, the walls, even the beds, all hewn out of solid blocks of whiteness. I've been thinking about the silence of the salt desert a lot. Months after I visited, the whole world fell silent and we all had to adjust to life in a muffled world. The volume turned down. It was lovely at first, of course. I got used to being woken by birdsong instead of motorists blaring horns and shouting abuse at each other. Foxes appeared apparently out of nowhere. Wildflower meadows sprung up in back alleys. Seagulls flew over deserted streets in an emptied out Dublin, no doubt wondering where everyone had gone and why the bins were empty. This was, to use that terribly overused phrase, the new normal. And then the noise slowly returned and we forgot all about the quiet. Still though, I long for the pristine hush of the salt desert and wonder when, or if, I'll ever get back there to lose myself once again in its enormous, serene embrace. On this morning's mix of new and archived scripts, we heard Kilmore Key and the Mullers by A.M. Cousins, The Younger Brother by Dermot Bulger, Never Too Late by Jerry Stembridge, The Wine of the Rubaiyat by Mary O'Donnell, I Went to the Isle of Wight to Talk About Death by Lanny O'Hanlon and Silencio Por Favor by Niall McArdle. The music was Vuhin Di Shunamalaren by Schubert, played by Yehuda Hanani on cello with Elliot Fisk on guitar. In Happy Moments Day by Day from William Vincent Wallace's Maritana, sung by Eric Hines. I Won't Let You Down by PhD. Kito Miai by Kurush Yagmai. And the Oompa Loompa song from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. From this and other RTE art and culture programmes, see rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.